In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's correspondent in London. And I'm Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic assesses all the latest Brexit developments in Brussels, London and Dublin. This week, David Frost returns to Brussels for a reset in relations with the EU following days of rioting in Northern Ireland. We'll explore what he and his EU opposite number, Maro Shevchevic, had for dinner and why food is now at the centre of efforts to fix the Northern Ireland Protocol. And with talk growing of a thaw in relations, Simon Coveney came to London this week to build bridges, but not necessarily the kind that Boris Johnson has in mind. And as the EU's vaccine rollout starts to gain momentum, we look at the ongoing trade implications of vaccine nationalism. And we'll hear later from Mara Shevchevic himself. But first, to both of you, in fact, since we've recorded our last episode on the 26th of March, it's been a busy time in Northern Ireland with mostly loyalist youths taking to the streets and there was plenty of stone throwing and clashes. And as with all of these things whether people like it or not, these kind of scenes do focus the mind. How are these scenes in Northern Ireland viewed from your respective bailiwicks? Let's start with you, Sean. Well, we've been talking about these issues of SPS checks and Article 16s and shelves not being stocked in supermarkets literally since the start of the year now. But the past two weeks has seen these issues explode onto the screens of mainstream news bulletins here in the United Kingdom, uh, specifically here in England, in London. And it's all because, I have to regrettably have to say, because of that rioting that's been taking place, the sight of buses being set on fire, cars being set on fire, petrol bombs being thrown night after night after night. After about five or six nights of this, the news did start to, to make the headlines in the mainstream news bulletins in England. And now we're seeing more and more reportage of what is going on on the ground, how people are feeling, particularly in the loyalist communities, particularly younger loyalists, people who weren't even born at the time that the Good Friday Agreement was launched, but are now expressing their discomfort at what they see as the intrusion of the Northern Ireland Protocol into their identity as UK citizens, as, as British nationals. And that issue is now starting to gain traction and attention in the wider politics of the United Kingdom. As I say, it's only really this week that it's become bulletin leading or close to the top of the bulletin type stories in the main British media. But it has certainly arrived and arrived with a bang. And this whole issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol is now back on the agenda here. OK, it's not just about the Northern Ireland Protocol, although that seems to have been a contributory factor. This is also about the economic situation of that community, that sense of threatened identity, Sean, as you say, and the decision by the Crown Prosecution Service in Northern Ireland not to prosecute anyone from Sinn Féin for the gathering for Bobby Story's funeral, the former senior IRA man, last summer. And all of these things have combined. But 
even if we're to look at the Northern Ireland Protocol, that in and itself is unlikely to solve any uh, concessions on that, is unlikely to solve the issue. As one Shankill Roadman, Moore Holmes, told our colleague Vincent Kearney while he was reporting on all of this, he said, my loyalism is not about my wallet, my loyalism is in my blood. Is that appreciated, Tony, just how deep these feelings run and how administrative tweaks around the protocol may not be enough to put the genie back in the bottle? Certainly people in Europe know that it's real and, and these feelings are real. I don't think they ever doubted that, though. I must say that talking to diplomats from various member states and officials here in Brussels, I'm always struck by how much they they really do know about the nuances and complexities of Northern Ireland politics. We might be surprised by that, thinking that they, they would be somehow remote from the ancient and, and tribal conflict. But at the same time, you know, we've been dealing with the Northern Ireland situation from a European, through a European lens for nearly six years now. And stuff starts to stick and people start to identify patterns and complexities. And one diplomat I spoke to from a fairly substantial member state in terms of population and size said, look, n- you know, no matter what we do to the protocol loyalists will hate it it's their new no surrender he said to me added to that people know that there are other factors at play they know about the pandemic they know about deprivation in certain loyalist areas and they also presumably what's uh, and again our our colleague has been reporting on this the uh, police crackdown on loyalist paramilitaries and mostly in the area of drug dealing criminal gangs while the loyalist communities council have said they're an umbrella group representing the uvf the uda and the red hand commando said that the organizations weren't involved that individuals were clearly involved in getting people out on the streets, getting people, as kids as young as 12 or 13 out on the streets in order to create a ruckus as a way of demonstrating their power against the police in these areas. Yeah, I mean, and, and none of that sort of stuff is going to win any friends or influence people in national capitals in the European Union or in the European Commission. Um, uh, now, th- like the, the European Commission has an office in London, as we know, that's been that's been part of the ongoing difficulties in the in the past few months. The the diplomatic status of the ambassador there and, and the and the protocol aspects around that, but there are staff there who write detailed reports on what's happening in Northern Ireland, and they circulate the, those reports back to Brussels, and those reports are circulated around um, European capitals. So people have a detailed appreciation of of what's happening. Um, and they are already embarked on a process of which we can talk a lot more shortly, sure, which will try and fix the protocol. But there, there is absolutely no way that the riots are going to derail the protocol. Certainly they have focused minds and they have given people an impetus to try and be as flexible and as pragmatic as possible, but up to a point. So I don't think the rioting has made or will make a vastly material difference, partly as well because a lot of officials were simply away from Brussels over the Easter break right. uh, when, when these uh, events were happening. Well, there w- we will be spared from such disturbances over the course of this weekend because Prince Philip's funeral is on and since his death they have called a halt to the street demonstrations as a mark of, of respect towards that. But, Sean, it's not even an ask from London. I mean, even if the rioting is designed to exercise leverage in any way, that leverage doesn't reach to London, 
the demand to scrap the protocol from loyalist communities isn't being echoed in Whitehall. No, it's not being echoed in Whitehall. It's not a, a British government demand at all. And I don't get any sense that uh, they find it in any way convenient in their dealings with Brussels that there should be rioting and disturbances of this scale. If there is a political motive or political background to it, it's more in the realms of unionist politicians themselves with the drumbeats that have started right at the start of the year about invoking Article 16 to call a halt to it, literally happening in the first week that the Parliament was back in January when DUP members were calling for uh, an Article 16 freeze on the activity of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Article 16 again, though, cropped up uh, this week in uh, emergency questions to Brandon Lewis, the Northern Ireland Secretary, who pushed back at the EU, as did several other members from the Conservative benches, and saying, look at the way they have uh, acted badly in invoking Article 16 as part of their vaccine policy. Again, these are things that we've spoken about months ago, but are still part of the cut and thrust of politics at Westminster, but also more disturbingly in the political life of Northern Ireland itself. They have uh, grown, the situation has been destabilised, not so much perhaps by the protocol itself, but certainly by Brexit. We've seen these long waves washing out from the rock that came into the pond that was the Brexit referendum, and these waves that are now impacting on the shores and leading to rioting, these are the long wave effects of what happened back in 2016. And some people thought it might happen in the nationalist community. Other people are saying, no, look, it's now washed over to the unionist community. And in the traditional divided politics of Northern Ireland, what is being seen as a win for the nationalist community in terms of the protocol is being treated as a loss for the loyalist community. So there's very much a case of zero-sum thinking going on and being promoted in certain sectors in Northern Ireland. How do you de-escalate that, remove the tensions that are there, very obviously uh, present there? Uh, Certainly it is focusing more minds in London politics and Westminster politics. And indeed, one of those focused on it is Louise Haig. She's the uh, Labour Party's spokesperson on Northern Ireland. She met with Simon Coveney on Wednesday evening, along with uh, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, and Lisa Nandy, their foreign affairs spokesperson. The very next day, which is yesterday, as we're recording this, uh, she travelled to Belfast for meetings with loyalists. Along the way, she caught up with our colleague Laura Hogan in Belfast and said that really the British government and Boris Johnson himself now have to get involved in all party talks in trying to de-escalate things in Northern Ireland. Here's what she said. Well, I've been speaking to communities around the Shank Hill today um, who have expressed really serious anxieties about the uh, recent violence and disorder and about the potential for that to continue over the coming days and weeks. And what they've said to me is that there's a real vacuum of political leadership. The British government has a role as co-guarantor to the Good Friday Agreement to be an honest broker and step in when there's political instability in Northern Ireland and we need to see that happen now. Boris Johnson should be here convening cross-party talks with all parties to the protocol in order to ensure that we can find political pragmatic solutions and ease tensions. Well, We need to see the British government stepping up and taking some responsibility for the consequences of their actions here in Northern Ireland. We need to see maximum flexibility both from the British government and from the EU in reducing checks and controls between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Sean, just to stick with that, the Taoiseach and Boris Johnson had exchanged phone calls as well, given what's gone on in Northern Ireland. Simon Coveney travelled to London. What was the main thrust of Simon Coveney's visit that you mentioned there? Was he there to talk protocol? Was he there to talk engagement 
on solving and calming down the situation in Northern Ireland or was it to do with Ireland's Security Council obligations? One would think the former, although that's not mutually exclusive with the latter. No, I mean, it was, it was a case of all three of them. The uh, Security Council apparently had been invited uh, some time ago by Dominic Rabb to come when he could, but of course with the, the pandemic he hasn't been able to, so this is his first trip to London in a year. Normally he'd be here a lot more frequently than that for a range of business issues, so this was a case of trying to round up as many meetings in as short a time uh, as possible. Certainly the Northern Ireland Protocol issue has become very pressing and it is linked in with the uh, disturbances in Northern Ireland. So he met Brandon Lewis and David Frost together and the three of them talked through these uh, issues of how the protocol is interacting with the instability in Northern Ireland politics and uh, that kind of gave Lord Frost insights into the Irish government thinking, more direct insights into the Irish government thinking before he jumped on the Eurostar and went across to Brussels for dinner with Mara Shevchevich. Also, there was that meeting with Dominic Raab, the UK foreign minister. That, as you say, was about UN Security Council issues. Ireland uh, is on the UN Security Council this year and next year. No shortage of things to, to talk about right. there from um, you know Eastern Ukraine to take your pick. But right, but it's, it's another one of these channels through which the governments can speak, which can only be a healthy thing. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it, it's good. And another one, of uh, course, is the British-Irish Intergovernmental Council. It's a body that hasn't met that frequently, although, as Brandon Lewis again pointed out in the House of Commons on Tuesday, it's met more frequently over the past three years than it did over the previous uh, eight or nine years. And he is in favour of uh, convening another meeting of that, as is Simon Coveney, though he's not sure whether immediately meeting would serve any purpose. There's still some things to be worked through before it's worthwhile bringing uh, those two governments together in a meeting. But uh, certainly we are looking at uh, that as the direction of travel in which he would like to bring the Northern Ireland issues. In terms of the Brexit issues, and of course this is Brexit Republic that we're uh, on here, he was discussing a range of things with David Frost. I asked him about one of the ideas that's been gaining a bit of traction here in London over the past week or so, and again, it's something we've spoken about many times here, which is the idea of having a veterinary agreement between the UK and the European Union, similar to Switzerland or New Zealand have, which would remove effectively a lot of the checks that would go on at the Northern Ireland ports. Here's what he had to say about that. This isn't an easy issue to resolve because this has been discussed before and you know the the EU proposal around dynamic alignment has been rejected by the British government and the British government's proposal around a recognition of equivalence has been rejected by the EU side. So we know what's not possible. The challenge is to try and find something that is doable and I think there's a significant prize for that if we could achieve it in the context of reducing the number of checks particularly in northern irish ports linked to the protocol of finding a way to to create a an agreed position on sbs on plant health animal health food health issues but really that is a matter for the technical teams in in Marshevkovich's office and in, in in David Frost's office, but you know we we explored some of that. I wouldn't say that we've we've resolved it by any means, but I do think that you know if you are looking for areas that reduce the the impact on the ground of the protocol and its implementation in Northern Ireland, to reduce the number of checks that are required in ports, this is an area that I think is more than worth exploring and discussing a way forward on. Is that, from your understanding, the area that is? 
No, I mean, there are, as I say, there are about 27 different issues. They span multiple different areas, whether it's medicines, whether it's VAT, whether it's steel, whether, uh, whether it's SBS, uh, and, and a whole range of other things in terms of physical infrastructure, following through on commitments that have been made in, in multiple areas that haven't actually happened yet. So, uh, I mean, I don't think that, that you will see a major breakthrough this evening in terms of discussion between the two sides, but hopefully we can see a building of, of trust, sort of a reinforcement of the message from the British government that they're serious about implementation of what's been agreed, and also a discussion between the two sides on the pragmatism that's needed to, to make the protocol work on the ground. I think it's important that Ireland doesn't put itself in the position of being a negotiator here. We're not. We're very much on the, the EU side, and we speak to the Commission a lot. But this is really for Sefcovic and, and Frost to, to to try to work their way through these 25, 27 areas uh, to see whether we can get a, a pathway forward that both sides can sign up to. And that's, that's, I think, where the process is right now, which is a much better place, by the way, than where we were a few weeks ago, when the focus was very much on trust, legal challenges, standoffs, and so on. I mean, I think there has been an improvement in the mood between both sides, and that's very much necessary to move this thing forward. So, Tony, after Sean spoke to him, as we just heard there, David Frost was headed to Brussels to meet his counterpart, Maros Shevchevich. What was on the menu, literally and metaphorically there? Well, metaphorically, Colm, on the menu was the first face-to-face meeting, as far as I'm aware, between the two men since Lord Frost was given the job. And also trying to salvage the protocol in the face of, in the wake of those riots that we've we've discussed. Literally on the menu, a very impressive lineup. There was asparagus velouté with scallops, followed by sea bass with a barrigoule of vegetables. Any French listeners are welcome to explain to us what that means. Right. Rounded off by a dessert of mascarpone, I think it is. Uh, Eau de fraise, meringue and vanilla ice cream. Just sort of getting hungry now, reading this out. Are they Um, controversial fish? I mean, we we, we did have... Scallops, yeah. I mean, they're bivalve bivalve mollusks, aren't they, which have... Are are they happy fish? That's what we want to know, Tony. Are they British fish? Well, they're not happy if they're not British, according to... to, Yes, Jacob um, Rees-Mogg. Jacob Rees-Mogg himself. Yes. Happiest fish in the world. Yeah, so they... I mean, the preamble to this meeting, of course, was the, was the riots. But we've also had a lot of activity behind the scenes. You know, we know that in recent months there have been a lot of difficulties over the protocol, the Article 16 issue, which we've covered in depth, and then the UK with its own unilateral measure on extending grace periods, and that, of course, triggered legal action against the UK by the EU. So a lot of upheaval and unhappiness. So this meeting was designed to try and steady the ship and inject some political momentum into a process that was kind of ongoing quietly in the background, involving a lot of tech officials at technical level looking at ways where the protocol can be made a bit more manageable. Some of the very hot button issues that have fed into the whole identity question that we've discussed about what food you can or can't buy in Northern Ireland if it's come from GB. And to get the process rolling, the commission had asked London for a roadmap to spell out exactly where and when they would come into compliance to full compliance with the protocol. So that is, when are you going to have the permanent border control posts up and running? When are we going to get full access to the UK's import clearance database? 
uh, when are we going to see more details on the trusted trader right. scheme and so on and what stage uh, is that roadmap at is it is it a complete well, map or is it one of those medieval maps in which there are well, large white spaces saying there be dragons well the trouble is whether it's medieval or not or has dragons on it you know one man's roadmap is another man's work document and or work program and the british view was that it wasn't up to them alone to set out the problem areas they regard this as a a joint initiative and joint obligation, if you like, because they still want concessions from the EU on how the implement how the protocol is implemented. So instead of a roadmap, um, the Commission got a work program um, and an invitation for the Commission to say what they would do to make life easier. Um, the Commission, I understand, was less than thrilled at this document which arrived, but they felt that it was a starting point. The document came with a letter from David Frost, which in turn also said, look, this is a starting point. Let's work with this. The Commission briefed member states uh, in the working party just at the end of March, uh, made up of officials from member states, and they agreed to give the Commission a mandate to embark on on a very technical exercise now to see what exactly can be done to make the protocol easier to manage while still respecting the integrity of the single market and what must Britain do in return to meet its obligations under the protocol. In other words, have those things ready um, by a certain time, meet certain milestones along the the, the pathway uh, over the next uh, weeks and months. uh, And then the dinner, therefore, on Thursday night was to give that process the kind of political impetus it needed uh, and I think that's that's what's happening now it, I, I understand it was it was a very good constructive meeting both men spoke for half an hour before they dived into the asparagus and uh, sea bass uh, and interestingly too uh, th- there are new people involved in in the teams of officials on on the UK and the EU side Marie Simonson who is a Danish official working for the European Commission uh, and Rebecca Ellis on the UK side, both seen as very professional, very competent individuals who've brought, I think, a kind of a fresh perspective. And that has added to a very positive mood that something can be worked out, but it's still going to be fairly difficult and will take quite a bit of time. Right. And you've been speaking, you caught up with Mara Shevchevic today. So to maintain the momentum of that rather positive tone you're striking in the course of this interview, he strikes a rather positive tone himself. Vice President Shevchevic, welcome to Brexit Republic. You've had a long uh, and late dinner last night with uh, David Frost. You've given your technical teams a political steer, I think you called it. Does that mean that we are, are on track for some kind of conclusive, comprehensive agreement on the outstanding issues of the protocol? That's, that's definitely the, the goal, and I really have to appreciate the good constructive atmosphere we had uh, uh, over the dinner yesterday, but I have to say that we've been in very intensive uh, contacts uh, with Lord Frost over the last three, four weeks, so before the Easter, during Easter, after Easter, just to create uh, the, the space for our technical teams, for the co-chairs of the specialized committees to go through all the very important issues we have to resolve jointly and together. And I'm very happy that it was also acknowledged yesterday that what we are looking for now is a joint approach to solving these problems, because only in the, that way we can give the predictability Uh, prosperity and stability uh, to the island of Ireland, uh, which absolutely deserves that. 
How much have the riots and the images from Belfast and, and Derry and other parts of Northern Ireland contributed to the process at the moment? Does that, has that perhaps made people in Brussels and in national capitals wake up to the reality of what the protocol means on the ground? I think that it just shows that uh, what kind of uh, responsibility we, ha uh, we have. I mean, uh, all of us. I mean, it's a huge uh, uh, responsibility and, uh, uh, and therefore what we want to do is to make sure that we'll be working jointly with the UK, Lord uh, Frost and myself, to make sure that uh, we would be uh, working in uh, finding the good solutions for the people on the island of Ireland uh, and to make sure that the withdrawal agreement is uh, properly implemented and at the same time that um, all that uh, advantages we've been uh, discussing and describing where the uh, protocol on Ireland and Northern Ireland was being adopted are actually put in practice. And that's, I think, should be our own goal. And I'm glad that now uh, we have a joint approach. Of course, it will be very difficult, uh, difficult way. I mean, of course, uh, we haven't resolved everything. I mean, there is uh, still a lot of things to do because uh, the relationship between EU and, and UK is massive. So there is uh, lots of uh, areas of uh, cooperation and a lot of the things have to be resolved. Uh, and of course, uh, for us, what is important is that uh, withdrawal agreement is properly implemented, that uh, we, of course, protect the integrity of the uh, EU single market, but at the same time that uh, we do it uh, in a way that all communities on the island of uh, Ireland would see that has a positive side to it and we definitely want to develop it to the maximum. It's been of course a difficult few months for the relationship between Europe uh, and the UK around the protocol, the Article 16 issue, uh, the embassy in, in, in London um, and the arrival of Lord Frost was seen as heralding a, a more abrasive, perhaps antagonistic uh, attitude by the UK. Uh, but I get the impression that, that the chemistry is better. The, is, is that fair to say? I think it's, it's fair to say because we've known each other with David uh, for, for, for many years. We had our previous diplomatic uh, lives, so uh, we came across many years ago. So it was uh, very good and uh, important to catch up with him yesterday. Of course, we are now in uh, very different roles. We have uh, uh, lots of responsibilities and uh, I, I'm glad that uh, I hope that also yesterday we kind of restored that uh, hotline type of approach that something is happening. Let's call each other. Let's not surprise each other. Let's not be unilateral in what we do and have this uh, joint uh, approach because only in, in that case we can also guarantee that uh, there will be support for it, so that uh, it will bring the, the, the positive results. And I think this is exactly what the Ireland and Northern Ireland need. They need positive results, good cooperation on the, on the ground. And that's uh, uh, what definitely on my side uh, will do our, our maximum to achieve that. Now, the UK has presented its own work program or, or roadmap, as, as people are calling it as well. It hasn't been published or shared with member states, but is it possible for the EU to accept at some point that things like sausages or, or bulbs or plants with soil coming in from GB to Northern Ireland don't really pose a, an existential threat to the single market? I mean, can we see genuine compromises here? I think we spent uh, the, the first week since uh, arrival of Lord Frost on identifying what are the problematic sectors, and there are more than 20 of them. On uh, UK, 
list of priorities, but also on our rather long list uh, of priorities. And we have to take uh, one by one. And I think what is very important is to, to, overall, to overall progress, uh, to see that for us, of course, uh, the respect for the withdrawal agreement, respect for union law, law are absolute prerequisites. We cannot renegotiate the withdrawal agreement or the protocol, but uh, we want to make sure that uh, uh, we look from every possible aspect, from every possible technical solution, uh, which we can uh, put on the ground, but that needs the good faith negotiation. We need to we need to have the sincere efforts, uh, and I think that our UK partners see that from our side. We sincerely are trying to resolve many uh, of the of the issues uh, on the ground, and I hope that we will be able to replicate also on our top level that good uh, relationship which is being built. Uh, uh, between the, the EU and Northern Irish officials uh, on, uh, uh, on the ground uh, in, uh, in the Northern Ireland, because I know that, that cooperation works very well, it's beneficial for both, and we just, I think, should replicate it also on the top level as well. Finally, unionism at the moment is united in its opposition to the protocol, that they don't want changes here and there, they want the protocol to be gone. Is it your view that the British government has accepted that the protocol is here to stay? I can say that uh, for me it was quite clear uh, also from, from the Lord uh, Frost uh, position that they respect uh, the agreements and the treaties they signed, the withdrawal agreement and also on the protocol on the island or Northern Ireland. So we are working uh, on uh, the implementation of the protocol. I think uh, David is uh, very clear on the, on the areas uh, which they feel are very sensitive. We of course uh, understand that and we are also very open in telling them what is uh, uh, what is very uh, sensitive uh, uh, area for us. So we just need to find a way how we can build bridges over these uh, problems, over, over these uh, um, uh, issues which are on the table. And I hope that through the good faith negotiations, if we really put our minds to it and a good will into it, that we can resolve any problem which uh, are on the table. I think we are already quite well tested because I think to uh, get uh, uh, through so many years of negotiation of the withdrawal agreement, uh, the protocol, the, the, the TCA. So we have shown that we can find a solution if we sincerely want to do that. And on our side, that sincerity is very clear. I believe that uh, it's the same uh, uh, with David. Yesterday, the talks we have were very constructive, but there is a lot, a lot of things to do. And uh, uh, hopefully through that positive attitude, we can overcome the difficulties. Perfect, thank you very much. So that was all very positive, Tony, kind of constructive dialogue being held, a hotline established, all very good, positive stuff. But, Sean, if we look at David Frost, he's considered Mr. Sovereignty. So how is something like an SPS coordination or alignment, how's that going to go down, if at all, on the London side of things? Uh, it's going to be really difficult because, uh, you know, the, the British were, were prepared to take it on uh, a sort of a, a trust basis that, you know, we have the same standards as the EU now, so uh, you should just recognise us, have a mutual recognition, whereas the EU has been looking for this dynamic alignment in which the British would have to follow uh, EU regulations and changes to those regulations later, uh, and those two ideas couldn't meet. Uh, they couldn't meet in a whole range of areas, and again, this cuts right down to this uh, sovereignist argument and is supplemented by the notion of it would constrain uh, the British in seeking new trade deals with uh, other trade partners, most the notably the United States. Absolutely the US in particular, because the US always ask for agricultural 
uh, access in any of their trade uh, treaties. Uh, that in itself is a controversial issue here in Britain, um, not least because the British farm lobby uh, like the kind of protections uh, that they've been used to uh, sheltering behind for the last half century as part of the EU system and don't necessarily want to open themselves up to lots of competition from America. So amongst the most enthusiastic opponents of uh, chlorine chickens or hormone beef are chicken and beef farmers here in the UK. Um, however, uh, Lord Frost does have his own uh, ideological, I guess, uh, objections to doing those kind of deals with the EU. Whether the technocrats on both sides can find workarounds here that might have the same sort of effects uh, remains to be seen, or uh, as some people are starting to conjecture here in Britain, uh, whether the notion of a quick trade deal with America is starting to slide away now, and that perhaps uh, agreeing to some kind of dynamic alignment uh, type of process for the next four or five years with the EU to be reviewed with a sunset clause after the next election and after the next Stormont elections. Uh, maybe that might be another way out of it to just get them over the hump of the next couple of years uh, when this uh, Northern Ireland protocol issue is going to be extremely problematic unless uh, solutions are found. And again, having this kind of food SPS check, that's where the real bulk of the uh, problem is and the, the vast uh, bulk of the physical checks that have to be carried out are because there isn't that uh, alignment between the two regimes. So that is uh, definitely an area that, that uh, ought to be and indeed is being looked at by the two sides really intensively, as Tony has said. Right. Well, before we go to the future point of chicken nuggets smelling vaguely of Domestos landing on shores nearby. Tony, what nuggets did you manage to winkle out <laughs> last night in terms of any bumps in the road flagged with you? Yeah, I mean, just to pick up on, on Sean's sort of thread there, yes, that you know, clearly there are a lot of tricky areas regarding the protocol parcels. We've talked about steel imports getting hit with tariffs coming into Northern Ireland because of the overlapping quotas that both the EU and UK have. You know, it's a really complicated area. Medicines as well. Any medicines going to Northern Ireland are normally authorised by a regulator in the UK, but that can't happen after the protocol comes into effect. There's a grace period at the moment uh, because those medicines could then circulate throughout the EU. Uh, this doesn't just affect Northern Ireland, it affects Malta and Cyprus as well because those countries are kind of batched off in terms of distributing medicines that are produced in the UK or marketed from the UK. So there's a, all of these issues, but the really tricky ones revolve around food SPS rules because it deals with public health. I mean, that's a very political and very sensitive issue for member states, and it deals as well with the integrity of the single market. On the question of an SPS agreement, some kind of veterinary agreement, yes, there's been a lot of talk about that here in Brussels as well as in London. We should distinguish between a Swiss-style agreement where Switzerland effectively swallows the entire EU rulebook on uh, food safety and a New Zealand-style agreement which is uh, which is more like equivalence, you know, where they have where the EU recognises to a certain extent that New Zealand food is well produced and is safe. That just reduces friction. It doesn't remove it altogether and the volumes of food are a lot bigger for Great Britain to Northern Ireland so that's not really going to work for the EU and the Switzerland model is not going to work for the UK under the Boris Johnson government because of the sovereignty issue that Sean has mentioned. What they're going to look at now over the next months is each individual component of the SPS 
spectrum, the Commission will take a risk-based approach to that to see what what exactly is the precise risk of food coming in from the UK to Northern Ireland. What is the precise risk to public health? What is the precise risk of it getting into the single market and you know creating some kind of ambiguity? And this gets into how trustworthy is the UK system. UK officials will say, look, you know, on the 1st of January, we had the same standards as the EU. We haven't changed them. We can say we're not going to change them for a while. Can there be some way that the EU will recognise that and apply that to their risk analysis? For that to Uh, work, it would sound like you'd need a very non-antagonistic relationship between the EU and the UK, some of the rhetoric that we've heard since the beginning of this year would want to be dialed down. We get into the whole vaccine diplomacy thing with Sean in a moment, but it would it would the mood would want to improve between the two sides and a far less confrontational tone be at play. Yeah, uh, uh, that's true. Uh, and also, it's it's always important to remember in these conversations that Maros Shevchevich is par excellence a diplomat and uh, a dealmaker. And, you know, he's he's managed to reconcile and resolve a lot of issues in the past year with Michael Gove, first of all, and he's doing the same now with David Frost. It's not the same to say that member states will sign up to something that he cooks up with David Frost and a country like France, you can be guaranteed, will not give you any loose change over shortcuts around food safety and that whole question of public health. So this will be a a tricky one and there may be dead ends where they simply can't get agreement. But something like guide dogs and the issue of guide dogs moving from Northern Ireland to Great Britain needing to be quarantined because now the GB is out of the EU, needing a special health certificate, whereas before they could just move back and forth. I've been led to believe that there will be uh, an early win on that one or an early sort of low-hanging fruit type agreement between both sides. Also, uh, uh, getting back to identity, I'm I'm told that it's very important for unionists to be able to take their dogs to Scotland and back. Who knew? Um, I certainly didn't. But this is another very sore point for people in Northern Ireland, this idea that you have to put your dog in quarantine when you hop over to Scotland for a trip and then get a special health certificate. So I think they will find some early agreements on that. But when it comes to meat products, chilled meat products, dairy products, none of which have been produced under strict EU food safety rules, but they have been produced by the UK who's saying, look, trust us, our food safety standards are the best in the world, etc., etc. You've got to ask yourself, what, like, what's the legal framework for this? It's all right all very well having a common sense pragmatic approach but in the, at the end of the day you're going to need a legal framework and you're going to need a, you're going to need a hell of a lot of time i mean the the process you're talking about there sounds like the kind of line by line stuff that would go on mm. in a trade negotiation normally it's just happening it after months, the yeah. fact here it, it will take months but the, but the key point is that it's process you know it's officials getting down to very nitty-gritty discussions and as long as they're doing that and they're making incremental progress then that message goes out loud and clear and that it is hoped will just keep the temperature kind of manageable in Northern Ireland especially you know during the marching season. All right. Well, that, there's life in the old podcast yet then, Sean. I mentioned vaccines there and you just wanted to touch on the on the vaccine rollout and the ongoing trade implications of vaccine nationalism. How has that cropped up this week? 
Yes, it's cropped up this week because the OECD, the club of rich industrialized economies, has done a bit of digging on vaccines and vaccine components and all the other bits and pieces that go into vaccination trade, looking at who's been doing what, and started mentioning a few of the things we've been talking about, the role of SPS checks, would you believe it, in uh, vaccine components and um, technical barriers to trade and non-tariff barriers and tariffs as well. Apparently, there's about 20% of the countries in the world, amazingly, put tariffs onto vaccines. The vast majority of countries obviously don't. But they were saying things that we've been talking about here. You need fast clearance, lots more technology, electronic filing to get the vaccines through very quickly. And they're saying that some of the things that like the EU has done with uh, green channels for faster movement of priority things like pharmaceuticals are good and will be in for the long term and are urging other countries to do that kind of thing. They've also done a bit of looking on who are the main producers of not just the vaccines, but the components and all the bits and pieces around them, US, China, India, Mexico, as you might expect, seven EU states as well. They did the top three producers of about a dozen different categories of things. And that's where we discovered that Ireland is the world's number two producer of needles. If you're going to be doing vaccines, you need needles. And uh, Ireland is the number two to America in terms of producing these needles. And why not? The uh, hollow uh, needle for the hypodermic syringe was invented in Dublin in 1844 and is still providing for the country that invented it uh, many, many years later. Strangely enough, though, the UK didn't feature in any of the top three items there. Romania did uh, right. for freezers. It's <laughs> get, the number three that, supplier of freezers Get that green jersey off you, go on. Get the green jersey on. I mean, Poland is in there as well, as well as places you'd expect. Uh, the Netherlands, the world's number one supplier of dry ice. Who'd have thunk it? But they are. Uh, and, of course, you need that if you're... Uh, right. Wrapping up your uh, uh, ever been to a gig? Vaccines. Ever been to a gig in the Netherlands, Tony? Is there a particular penchant for dry ice or in the in the clubs of the Netherlands? Are, are they yeah, exported all? You can rely on them. Yeah, yeah there is. There is apparently right. also Scandinavia do a lot of that kind of stuff with their sort of thrash thrash metal. Those singers who sound like the Cookie Monster. Right, right, very good. In terms of the vaccine Sorry. nationalism, though, I mean things have quietened down this week in the UK. It is, of course, because of uh, Prince Philip's funeral, which is taking place over this weekend. It might just be one of those times where there's a little bit of a pause and a, a reset. Uh, and time for people to start thinking before they start saying things uh, and stirring up the pot. Everybody's running into all kinds of difficulties over their vaccine supplies at the moment, and it might just be nice, maybe this is just wishful thinking on my part, of course, but if they just calm it down a little bit, it's a, it's a nice time to reset things. Also, in terms of the British government, they want to start focusing now on their G7 summit in June, and also the elections which are going on here in the UK as well. So they might just might start to go a little bit quieter on the EU back and forth and and, uh, bitching and moaning at each other. And that might be a good thing and might give a little bit of quiet space for Frost and Shevchevich and their technical teams to do a bit of working out. Right. Tony, what's coming up in the coming week between now and the next episode for you is the trade and cooperation agreement inching closer to ratification in the European Parliament? I think it is, yeah. So we've had two committees at the European Parliament, Trade and Foreign Affairs, who've given the go-ahead to the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. So that's seen as momentum and, and mood music for the Parliament as a whole to to ratify the treaty. They There's going to be a meeting of the Conference of Presidents next Thursday, and that's the group which sets the agenda 
of a European Parliament plenary session and they're the ones who can say we are, we're, we're going to put this on for a vote or not and they will make that decision on Thursday of next week. So I think the expectation now is that while they had been deferring the decision because of the UK's unilateral moves and so on, it looks like now they will put it on there for a vote and that plenary session vote would be between the 26th and 29th of April at the European Parliament. So also the, the European Movement Ireland is going to produce its Red Sea opinion poll next week on Irish attitudes to a lot of very highly sensitive issues, uh, the United Ireland, Brexit, the, the European Union following the troublesome vaccine rollout. So that's, that'll be one to look out for next week. And there'll be a General Affairs Council meeting in Brussels uh, and a Foreign Affairs meeting on Monday. So the General Affairs Council, of course, is European Affairs Ministers. And they're going to, again, they're going to be looking at the relations with the UK, not just the protocol, but the wider relationship and how that's going to be managed. Right. Brexit still winkling its way back onto all of these agendas, which I'm sure they <laughs> hope they'd be well shot of. What about you, Sean? Anything coming up? Is the Are the UK nations all beating the drums in advance of elections in May? Is that the general concentration or are there any Brexit-specific events coming up? Not Brexit-specific, but UK politics probably going to rebound into action. They have been in this quiet period fighting their better instincts to go out and do electioneering it has to be said not all of them have been uh, successful in that battle but uh, the official period of mourning ends on Sunday and so uh, ministers will be out on the media and then back into the parliament and the gloves will be off I think because there is a lobbying scandal which is bursting out all over it would have been much bigger this week I suspect were it not for the uh, dampening effects of the uh, royal funeral but that will be out of the way next week so I think that'll explode. That'll take, uh, you know, all the, the fighting and, and uh, political action will be going into that. Then, of course, as you say, elections in Scotland and Wales, where nationalist parties are moving up in the agenda and issues like Brexit are very definitely figuring in those campaigns. We've already had up in the uh, Scotland, Scottish election, Alex Salmond trying to make his political comeback there on the nationalist side saying they'd be looking for single market access but it wouldn't create border problems with the United, with the, the rest of the United Kingdom with England in particular obviously Mr Salmond not a big follower of the Brexit Republic podcast because he might have learnt a few things about mixing and matching borders there so yeah these things are, are very much in the mix just because Brexit has happened it doesn't mean that the consequences of Brexit have gone away certainly not in the uh, politics of the uh, EU nations. Northern Ireland not going to the polls in May, not until next year. But that, of course, leaves more time for uh, these conflicts either to flare up or get sorted out, perhaps in more seafood dinners in Brussels. You never know. You never know. Okay, that's we it. Hope. <laughs> we live in hope indeed. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungain, RT's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, RT's Correspondent in London. And from me, Tony Connolly, RT Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening. <laughs>